Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. Good morning, family. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 1 through 5. The word of God speaks to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. What an epic start to the story. Uh, Hey, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. I am really excited to jump into the book of Genesis. Uh, I want to say if you're with us today, and maybe you were brought by a friend or you just kind of stumbled in, hadn't been in church in a while, or just not sure what you think about the Bible or the claims that we've already been making today. And I just want to say welcome to you. You do not have to have it all together. You don't have to believe what we believe. You don't have to check your doubts in at the door. I want to invite you to just bring all that in with you. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, it's an honor to open God's word with you today. And what I'd love to do is just take you out for coffee and process what what the Bible's all about, what we believe, why we think there's good news here. So thanks for being with us today. Um, This is a really pivotal time in the life of our church to jump in as we look at this particular book, both for those of you who are followers of Jesus and for those of you that are just not sure where you're at, because every single cultural whatever that we're facing is addressed in Genesis. Everything that we're seeing swirling about, uh, the, the complexities, the needs, the places of tension in our society, they're all addressed in Genesis, and we're gonna get a chance to kind of dig in and process through a lot of that. So really excited for the next 11 weeks or so as we dig in. Today I'm talking primarily about creation, so we're gonna be in Genesis 1-1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. We're gonna be looking at this from the angle of creation, and then next week we'll dig back through Genesis chapter one and look at other aspects of the story. Sound good? Awesome. Okay, let's jump in. I'm gonna pray for you. If you would pray for me, uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to open up the word of God and to read about you. This is, this is a story about you and what you've done and who you are. And I, I confess that there are places in my heart and in my mind, and there are places in this room where we, we need to be corrected and we need to be adjusted and we need old, bad, untrue visions replaced with good vision. And we wanna be able to see who you really are as the creator God. We wanna be able to know you so that we can love you, so that we can follow you, so that we can obey you. And thank you that behind all of that is actually the fact that you're the one who's been pursuing us this whole time. And I just, just have a sense this morning in the room that there are people that feel like they've, not been pursued by you or are far from you or have done their best to hide from you. And thank you that today you are, you are coming after us with your love. You're coming after us with your mercy and with your grace. And there's no amount of whatever I'm carrying or they're carrying that is, uh, is too beyond your love. 
So we thank you, like we sang earlier, that, that your mercy is more than our sin. And, and, and my sin's a lot. Your mercy is more than our sin today. We want to sit in that. We want to celebrate that. So come and move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently heard a, a story about a mom and her five-year-old son that I, I found to be an insightful way to maybe just kick off as we jump into the book of Genesis. This mom uh, was approached by her five-year-old son, and it was one of those moments where every parent sort of dreads and is like hoping doesn't happen soon. But the, the son said, hey, mom, where did I come from? That's the question. And the mom was a little bit taken aback, like, oh, gosh, I had hoped that we'd be a few years away from having this conversation, but I guess here we go. I'm going to have to have the talk with my son. And so she starts to, like, jump in and stumble through it and does her best to kind of explain in a way that a five-year-old son could understand where he was from. And she's, you know, trying not to give too much detail, but give enough detail, and she's doing the whole thing. And and, and, and she started to feel pretty good about it. Like, I think I, I think I did a good job. She finishes up, and her son's kind of just like blankly staring at her, blinking, and goes, huh, that's weird. Jimmy said he was from Texas. <laughs> and, and the point of the story, it was a made-up story, but the point of the story <laughs> is that you, you need to make sure that you understand the question that's being asked before you give the answer, right? You can save yourself a lot of trouble and a lot of hot water by making sure you understand the question that's being asked. Now, with that in mind, I want you to read these words in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an absolutely epic way to start the story. This is the story. This is how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words in Hebrew. It doesn't matter if you read it in Hebrew or English or any other language. This is powerful. This is significant. But one of the problems is that we often approach this as Westerners in 2023, missing out on a lot of detail and past context, and we start trying to get answers from this text that this text is not interested in answering for us. We need to make sure that we understand the question before we jump in and start giving answers, right? So think about it like this. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think will help us as we go through Genesis, imagine you show up to a movie theater and you're 15, 20, 30 minutes late to the movie. You turn to your neighbor and you say, hey, how did the movie start? And your neighbor turns to you and says, well, about four years ago, they started pre-production and then they built a cast. And after they built the cast, you know, you know so-and-so eventually produced it and it finally hit theaters last week. Like, that's not what I'm asking. How did the movie start, right? And what you're asking there is what? What did I miss? How, do, how does the story start? How does the story go? What's the story? You're not asking about the mechanics of how the movie was made. You're asking about how did the story begin? And, and this is significant as we approach Genesis because Genesis chapter one is uninterested in giving us mechanics. It's not trying to tell us about how this thing happened. It's just trying to tell us that it happened and why. This is a story about God and his creative power and the world that he has made, who he is and who we are and what he's like and what we are like and what this world is like. That's what this story is about. So I've got four things that I want you to see as we work our way through chapter one all the way through two, verse three. Uh, they all start with the letter C, so I feel like I should get extra credit as a preacher, but that's for you to decide. So here's the first one. First thing I want you to see is the context, the context. Now, Pastor Kevin, one of our downtown pastors, said this last week. He preached for us. 
what he said was really significant. He said, the whole Bible, Genesis included, is written for us. Meaning it doesn't matter where you're from, what culture you're from, what language you speak, or when you enter this human story, the Bible's written for you. There's stuff in here for life and for godliness and giving you a vision of God and who you are and your role in this world. But when it comes to Genesis, as in all of scripture, it was not written to us. It was actually written to a different group of people. So one of the things that we need to wrestle with was who was this book written to? Because it can't mean to us what it never meant to them in the first place. We have to understand the context of Genesis. And so here's the context. Here's who this letter, this book was written to. It was written to post-Exodus Israel post-Exodus Israel. Have you ever read about the story of the Israelites being in Egypt and then getting delivered out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, going across the Red Sea safely, landing in the, the wilderness and they're promised a promised land and, and God shows up on Mount Sinai, he gives them the law, he's forming them as his unique people in this world. Do you remember that story? That's the context. They would have received this book in that time period, as they were post out of slavery, they, were, they had already crossed the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, that's when this story would have landed to them. Now, here's why that's significant. Because for them, at this time, one of the most incredible things that was happening all around them was that there were already pre-existent creation narratives in place. There are creation myths all over the place. You had the Hermopolis in Egypt. You had uh, the Enuma Elish in Babylon. You had the Epic of Gilgamesh. You had the Epic of Atrahasis. You had all these creation myths or creation stories that explained who the gods were, what the gods were like, who you were and why you existed and what you were like and what this world was like that you found yourself in. And one of the most significant stories for the people of Israel at the time was known as this, Babylon, the, this Babylonian creation narrative, the Enuma Elish. Now I'm gonna show you this photo here. This is a tablet of the story, but essentially what you have to the left is one of the gods, Tiamat, and to the right you have the god Marduk, who eventually becomes the chief god in Babylon. Now here's how the Enuma Elish uh, begins, and there's a lot of crossover between Genesis and the Enuma Elish, and that's intentional, and we'll explain why. Uh, essentially, what happened was this whole creation myth reads a bit like a, uh, an ancient Jerry Springer episode. That's how it reads. If you read it, I read it this week, it's fascinating. And the, the way that it reads is you have this pantheon of gods that are all family. All the gods are family. Tiamat starts to cause problems in the family with the other gods. And in fact, she tries to destroy the younger family members, the younger gods. And so the other gods are like, what do we do about Tiamat? Tiamat's this powerful god and, and very hard to control. But finally, Marduk finds a way to trap her in a net. And then what he does is he calls the wind god to come and to blow and hover over Tiamat. And what happens is as that wind god does that, her mouth, her jaw gets opened wide and it can't shut. So then what Marduk does is he fires his arrow down her throat. It pierces her heart and she dies. So then Marduk, he jumps on top of Tiamat, he slices her in half, and then he takes the top half of Tiamat and he makes the sky. He takes the bottom half of Tiamat and he makes the land. And all the gods are like, yeah, Marduk, you rescued us. Great job. And then time goes by and eventually the gods come to Marduk, who by that time is their chief god, and they start to complain. 
hey, we are sick and tired of getting our own food. We are sick and tired of working all day long to get the food and to make the food and to all of that. So can you solve our problem? And what Marduk does is Marduk says, yeah, I'm on it. He hires another God who then forms humanity by taking the, the sand from the land and blood from Tiamat, and he forms humanity from the blood and from the sand. And then basically their one job on earth, why they exist, why humans were created, was to feed the gods. This is the Enuma Elish story, and it's fascinating, and it has more and more, but here's the point of it, that all that existed came out of violence and chaos and strife. Humans are an afterthought, and the only reason you exist is to feed the gods. Now, it's inside of that context, saying something about the gods, something about this world, and something about humanity, that Genesis 1 enters the scene. And Genesis 1 functions like a prophetic defiance to those other narratives at the time. Genesis 1 functions like a counter-cultural story that is unlike any other ancient creative creation myth at the time. Here, here's what Gordon Wenham says. He says, an ancient person encountering Genesis' version of his traditions would not be struck by its similarity to the tales that he was brought up with, but by the differences. So was the author of Genesis aware of these other creation myths? Absolutely. Are they interacting with these other creation myths? Absolutely. But they're doing it as a prophetic defiance. They're doing it to say, well, this is who you say the gods are. Let me tell you who God really is. This is who you say humans are. Let me tell you the real story. This is how you say this world was set up to be. Let me tell you how God actually established this world to be. What you're gonna find is that both for them then and for us today, but for very different reasons, this is still as timely and prophetic and countercultural as it ever was. So with that in mind, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the creator. We talked about the context. Now let's talk about the creator. Look at verse one and two. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right, let's just pause there. Uh, th this entire chapter, and immediately so, introduces us to this God. The, the Hebrew word is Elohim. It just says, in the beginning, Elohim, God. And in fact, it's going to go on to mention God 35 times in this chapter alone. The point is clear. Derek Kidner says this. He says, this passage, indeed, the book is about him, first of all. To read, it without, to read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. This is a story about who God, the creator, really is. That's why it's significant. Now, did you notice anything that was missing from Genesis 1, 1, and 2 that you see in every other creation narrative? Did you notice anything missing? Yeah, there's a lot of things missing. Like, for example, there's no pantheon of gods. Just one all-powerful, supreme God. Just Elohim, that's it. There's, there's no pantheon, just one. This is the only creation story that existed in history that has one God and not a pantheon. That's significant, right? In addition to that, there's no mention of violence or chaos or strife or the gods coming into play by all these divine uh, family dynamics and stuff. There's none of that. In fact, all we're left with 
is an incredibly peaceful picture of this one God, Elohim, who is wisely and intentionally creating. And as we go through the story, what you're going to hear again and again and again is, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Friends, creation wasn't born out of violence and dysfunction and chaos. Creation was born out of the wise and good intentions of our creator, God. That's what the story's about. And, and, and right out of the gate, it's telling us a few things about the creator that are worth noting. The first is that this God, this creator, is eternal, and he's uncreated. All the other creation myths at the time had the gods coming into existence in a particular way, or existing alongside of other things that existed throughout history. Not so the God of the Bible. All it says is, in the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God. God has always been here. He's the uncreated creator of all things. He wasn't born. He wasn't fashioned. He wasn't designed. He has always been, and he always will be. In addition to that, he's sovereign, and he's unrivaled. And one of the things that we miss, because most of us don't read Hebrew, and most of us aren't familiar with creation myths at the time, but one of the things that we miss that's so powerful about Genesis 1 is that the author is repeatedly taking jabs at these creation myths. He's repeatedly taking jabs at their gods and taking jabs at their narratives to show what the real story really is and how powerful our God really is. Like here's an example. Uh, when it says that uh, darkness was over the face of the deep, that word deep in Hebrew, the deep, is literally the word Tiamat. It's the Hebrew word for Tiamat, that God from the Enuma Elish. And what's funny about the Enuma Elish story is that Tiamat's hard to handle. She, she's violent and she's strong and aggressive and she's hard to handle. But in this story, in our story, Tiamat is just there and she's not even personified as a God. She's just there. And what is God doing? Well, God is hovering over her just gently, calmly, you know, doing his thing. The spirit of God, it says, is hovering over the, the face of the deep. The spirit of God is another word for breath or wind. Just like in their story, the wind was coming and filling up Tiamat, and it was this epic battle. Well, in, in the creation story, Tiamat's just there, not even personified, and God is powerfully over her. Now, another one that's really fascinating is there's a word for sun and moon in Hebrew, but sun and moon in Hebrew sound really similar to the, the names of the sun god and the moon god and some of these Mesopotamian cultures. And so the author of Genesis doesn't use the traditional word for sun and moon. Instead, what he says is the greater light and the lesser light. And it's just another way that he's taking a jab and saying, you've turned the sun into a God and you've turned the moon into a God. And, and, and our story in Genesis 1 is there's only one God and he actually made the greater light and the lesser light. That's all they are, by the way. It's greater lights and lesser lights, right? It's amazing what he's doing, showing the sovereignty of God and how unrivaled this God really is. Eight times we read this command in Genesis 1, let there be fill in the blank, and immediately the response is, and it was so. How powerful is this God? He speaks, and it is. This is who this God is. And then one more thing to see about him is that he's actually really intentional, and he's really good. Again, all these other myths at the time had something happening out of violence and strife and jealousy within the pantheon of gods, but not this God. He is intentionally creating, and he's said to be good, and everything that he makes, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. In fact, what we see is over time, he's ordering this world, and he's blessing this world, and he's making a, a good place 
for humans to dwell in. And that leads me to the third thing that I want you to see, which is the creation, right? So we've talked about the context and the creator. Now let's talk about the actual creation itself. And now we can get ourselves into a bit of controversy. Sound good? Okay, maybe not, but here we go anyway. Notice again what Genesis 1-1 says in the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Absolutely loaded phrase, and I wish we could take like six weeks to unpack it, but let's just define some of these phrases. In the beginning, in Hebrew, all that simply means is a long, long time ago, and it's an undefined unspecified point in time. So it's not like in the beginning these things happened. It's like at some point in the beginning, and we're not really sure how long this lasted or when it, you know, just a long, long time ago, that's how the story starts. A long, long time ago in the beginning, and then this phrase, heavens and the earth in Hebrew, is a figure of speech to say everything, right? They would have read land and sky, or sky and land, heavens and earth, but the idea here is in the beginning, God made everything. So let me just ask you a question, right? Class, you ready? Here's the question. Um, When and how old does the scripture say that the earth was? It doesn't say. It it actually explicitly doesn't say. And so I just want to lay this out because I know some of you are like really passionate about this. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't care about that question. The Bible's not even asking that question. And certainly the Bible's not offering an answer to that question. So you can debate about it. You can have an opinion about it. You can go to science for the answer or whatever. But the point is, the Bible is not trying to tell us how old the earth was. And it's just a waste of our time to devote any amount of energy to it when really what it says is a long, long time ago, God made everything, right? Because again, it's not interested in the mechanics of how the movie were made. It's interested in what the story is, all right? You seeing that? Now, here's the next thing it says in verse two. It says, the earth was without form and void. Let's talk about that. That is a really interesting way to think about the earth. The earth was without form and void. Now, let me ask you, when you see that word earth and you think about it, what comes to your mind? Chances are it's this photo. One of the most influential photos in the history of humanity. This has been viewed almost more times than any other photo. Uh, what's wild about this photo, this is, this is called the blue marble. Guess when this was first taken? This was first taken in 1972. Isn't that amazing? Like, I was kind of shocked by that. I was like, we've always had this photo. No, we had this photo in 1972. Now, there's one other photo that was taken in 1968 that is is called the Earthrise photo. I'll show you that one here. And this is the very first time that humans saw the earth from the moon. And it wasn't even the whole earth. The the last picture I showed, the blue marble, was the first time we saw the whole planet. This is the first time that any human ever saw the earth from the moon. So imagine in 1968, this photo comes back and you're like, that's what we're standing on. I had no idea. That's amazing. So when you think of the earth, what comes to mind? That globe, that planet, that dot that's floating out in the middle of the universe. And it's almost humbling, is it, when you think about there's, there's billions of galaxies out there and the universe is ever expanding. And here we are, this, this dot, this speck, this planet just floating out there. That, that's unbelievable, right? This is the first time that humans were given a vision of that. Now, now, now hang with me. If you are an ancient Israelite, 3,000 years ago, what is your vision of the earth? Look, you can talk in church. You're not going to get kicked out or sent to a different church. 
Well, what is your vision of the earth? It's, it's this. It's what I'm standing on. The earth is the ground, right? So when I read, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. What we read is, in the beginning, God, God made the cosmos and the, the, the universe and the, and the galaxies and the stars. And, the, and then he made the planet, right? He made the, listen, that, that's not wrong to say, but that's not what Genesis 1 is saying. Genesis is just simply saying, in the beginning, some time ago, a long time ago, we're not really sure when, God made everything. He made the sky and he made the land, now, what about this land? Well, this land is interesting because it says that it's without form and void. Now, I think this is the last Hebrew word I'll give you, all right? So I apologize, but this is helpful. There's a rhyme that's given in Genesis 1 where it says tohu va bohu, two words, tohu and bohu, without form and void. Literally, tohu means formless. So don't think of like a blob of like, don't think of our planet as this bl- clay blob that God has to form. It's saying the land was formless, which another way to talk about that is it's uninhabitable. It's not, it's not formed or fit for humanity. And void or bohu, and bo, uh, bohu means it's empty. So the land was uninhabitable and the land was empty. Now, here's what's crazy about this. What you have from then on in the story is God doing the slow work in six days to form and to fill this land, to form and to fill a land that is going to be a habitable place for humanity. Look at verse three. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This can hang people up because they're reading it. They're like, okay, he, he created light, but he doesn't even create the sun and the moon and the stars till day four. What's happening? Well, again, when you ask questions like that, you're asking questions of the text that this is not trying to answer. You're thinking like somebody in 2023, what they were realizing is that God is the creator of time. He, he made day and he made night. He's bringing order to this chaos. He's actually coming in and he's bringing order and he's forming it. And on and on and on, this is what he does in the six days. He's forming and he's filling. In fact, days one through three are God forming the land, and days four through six are God filling the sky and the land. And what's even more powerful is this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also whoever this human author is that wrote Genesis, we think it's Moses who who authored the majority of the Pentateuch. What's wild is they're brilliant because what they're doing is actually pairing up the days together so that every day that has a form also is getting filled. Let me show you. And and day one, he, he makes light and time. And then what does he do in day four? He fills it with the sun and the moon and the stars. And day two, he makes the sky and the sea. And, and day five, he fills it with birds in that sky and fish in that sea. And day three, God makes land and agriculture. And what does he do in day six? Well, he fills it by making animals and making people. The point is that these days that we read about in Genesis are God forming and God filling a habitable place for you and I to live. No other creation story at the time ever gave this much intentionality and thought and beauty and planning into creating a place for humans, but this story does. How amazing. In fact, look at this in verse 11. It says, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees, note that, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Why the emphasis on fruit trees? Why the emphasis on fruit trees that bear seed that then are going to bear more fruit trees? Well, who needs fruit trees to survive? Anybody? We do. We need fruit trees. And here's why that's a big deal. Because remember what all the other stories at the time were saying. Why do you exist, human? You exist to feed the gods. You're a slave and you're subservient to the gods. You exist to feed the gods. You know what the story of Genesis says? God feeds his people. God feeds his people. He's not, a, he's not vindictive. He's not angry. He's, he's benevolent. He's generous. He's feeding his people. He creates a world that they can survive and thrive and flourish in. No other story put the emphasis there. This is amazing. In addition to that, the, the prophetic defiance and the beauty ramps up, like the drumbeat picks up. And, and we read this phrase. There's a phrase that shows up again and again, according to its kind. Did you notice that phrase? According to its kind. Let me show you in verse 11. It says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And it was so. Verse 21. So God, he he created the, the sea creatures, the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. All right, track with me. Every single living thing was created according to its kind. Plants, fish, animals, all were created according to its kind. In fact, there's only one created thing, only one created thing that is said to not be created to its kind. Do you know what it is? Humans. We're not created to its kind. Who are we created after? Well, look at what it says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, what it means to be made in the image of God. But suffice it to say that everything else that God made, he made according to its kind. But with us, he says, no, I'm, I'm going to make you different. I'm actually going to make you the pinnacle of my creation. And, and what you are going to be is going to be made in my likeness, in my image. There's something about humans that are going to have inherent dignity and value and worth. And that's not the story in any other ancient myth. All the stories, we exist to feed the gods. And, and there's only a few people who are called the image of God. And they were usually kings or people of positions of power. But, but not all people. And yet Genesis is going to come in and say, no, you were made according to his kind, his likeness, his image. This is powerful. Now already the story is, is this prophetic defiance of these other narratives at the time, but it ramps up, and here's the fourth thing that I want you to see, which is the cosmic temple. The cosmic temple. What was God all about when he was making the sky and the land in chapter one, and what he is gonna be doing in chapter two? What was God designing as he designs this world? 
Well, here's what's really fascinating. It is true to say that humans are made as the pinnacle of God's creation, right? It doesn't matter if you're dealing with like sea biscuit or any other awesome creature out there. Humans are actually the pinnacle of God's creation. We are at the top. It is the most significant, beautiful, important thing that God ever made. But it would be wrong to read Genesis as having us as the pinnacle of the story. We are the pinnacle of his creation, but we are not the pinnacle of the story. In fact, this is a story that has a very different crescendo, and the crescendo is driving to day seven. Day seven. Now, let me explain why this matters. Look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is after the six days. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. This is loaded with significance. Now, did you notice something earlier when I talked about the pairs on the first six days? How one through three are paired beautifully and perfectly with four through six. But did you notice that there is a day that didn't have a pair? There is a day that doesn't have a pair, and it's the seventh day. The seventh day stands alone, and here's what the author is doing. This was a literary device in the ancient world. When you're dealing with a language where you can't italicize or put it in all caps or like whatever, this is a way that the author is going to draw out the significance of something. And so what he does is he takes days one through three and pairs them with four through six, but there's one day that doesn't have a pair because this day stands apart. It's other, it's different, it's unique. And he wants you to, to catch it with your eyes. You read the story and go, Day seven doesn't have a pair. What's up with day seven? Well, here's the even more fascinating thing about day seven. All the other days, days one through six, end with, and it was evening and the morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. It was evening and morning the third day, on and on all the way through. And you get to day seven, and guess what is not tacked on at the end? And it was evening and morning. Why? Because day seven is a day that God intended to create and then place us inside of that you and I would never, ever, ever have to live outside of. We were made for Sabbath rest with God in this temple sanctuary that he calls the earth. That's why we were made, to rest with God, to be with God, and to worship God. And when you read ancient Near Eastern texts, what's fascinating is anytime those people would build a temple or a sanctuary or a ziggurat or whatever that they're building to worship the gods, they would always do a celebration. And can you guess how many days that celebration would last? Seven days every time. This is significant. This is why the days of creation in Genesis 1 matter so much. Uh, John Walton, in his excellent commentary, he says this, he says, in a temple construction project, the structure was built and the furniture and trappings were made in preparation for the moment when all was ready for the dedication of the temple. On this occasion, normally a seven-day celebration, the functions of the temple were declared, the furniture and hangings were put in place, the priests were installed to initiate the temple's operation. Somewhere in the process, the image of the deity was brought into the temple to take up residence and rest. Friends, do you see the point? That we look at this planet and we see this planet out there or whatever, but when God is writing the story, do you know what God is setting up when he sets up Genesis 1 and 2? A temple sanctuary for him. 
He's setting up a place where he intends to dwell with humanity on planet earth for the rest of our lives, for all of eternity, where we're going to experience this beautiful seventh day Sabbath reality forever. This is why we were made, to rest and be with God and to worship God in this world, which was like this cosmic temple. And it's really amazing as you read through the story of the Old Testament and you look at the sanctuary or the tabernacle that the Israelites built, do you know what would shock you about the inside of that tabernacle when you walked into it? It's that almost everything about it would remind you of the Garden of Eden. It was intentionally crafted to look like a garden on the inside. It was full of fruit trees and plants and leaves and, 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 and all these precious gems that you read about in Genesis chapter 2 and gold and all these things. And then you had this like holy place that then was separated by a veil to go into the, the, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And, and there were these cherubim angels that sat above the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God would come to dwell. Just like the cherubim that you read about in Genesis chapter 3 that are guarding the, the Garden of Eden from from humanity getting allowed to come back in because of our sin. Everything about the story would remind you of the Garden of Eden. And in fact, uh, this idea of working and keeping that we read about in Genesis chapter two, that's used again about the, the role of priest in the tabernacle, that they were there to work and keep the tabernacle. And, and, and the, that word that we read about in Genesis chapter one about the greater light and the lesser light, that word light in Hebrew is only used 10 other times in the entire Pentateuch and Every single time it's used, it's used in reference to the lights inside of the tabernacle. Everything about the tabernacle was pointing you back to Eden and God's intention. And then we see this as well in the development of the temple. And when both the tabernacle in Leviticus 8 and 9 and the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, when they were dedicated, they were dedicated with a feast that lasted for how long? Seven days. Except in the temple's case, it was two sets of seven days. It was seven days followed by another seven days. Here's the point. This world is, this world is God's intended temple. And the Garden of Eden was like the, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And God's intention was to, to form and fill a land that his people could live in and on with him on the Sabbath, Sabbath day rest for all of eternity. Now, in the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about what went wrong and why Sabbath reality is not our reality and, and why there's instead thorns and thistles and, 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 and you're hopefully starting to see connections for why the people of Israel longed for the promised land, right? Because they had a land that then they lost through sin and now they're, they're getting the land back and this is the promise. But here's what I want you to see. Where do we go from here? Well, I want you to allow the next few weeks and specifically Genesis 1 to reshape your view of the whole world reshape your view of the world. Now, we don't live in a moment in time where these ancient creation myths hold any weight with our heart today. As Westerners, that's not our problem. But we do have two other worldviews that we tend to live inside of that do kind of function as lenses with which we see the world. The first one is naturalism. Naturalism is just this idea that the world is simply a product of randomness just sort of accidentally came into existence. And, and planet Earth is this tiny speck of dust that's floating out in this, this uh, universe of billions of galaxies. And, and therefore, you and I are insignificant. You don't matter what you do. doesn't matter. Your life is going to be burned up in no time. And this whole world is probably not going to last very much longer anyway. And, and, and all of it's just meaningless and random. So we're told, live it up. Try to make the most of it. 
you know, do your best to be a good person as opposed to a bad person and enjoy life and you do you and have some fun because, you know, we eat and we drink for tomorrow we die. This is naturalism and yet what's crazy about this is Genesis 1 is going to blow that whole concept up and say something more significant is happening on earth. God is making a cosmic temple for his people. And by the way, the logic of naturalism doesn't even work, right? One philosopher said this. He said, this type of logic is like this. Man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. And you got to ask the question, how long can we believe naturalistic things and expect to be people that are rooted in meaning and rooted in truth and rooted in reality and actually being able to have a moral authority that is right or is wrong? How long can we expect to say, oh, this is all accidental and still live lives that are beautiful and true and good? How do we do that? We need this book. And that leads me to the second main idea that we have playing out in our world, and this is probably more predominant in this room, therapeutic deism. Therapeutic deism is the idea of like, yeah, yeah, God's out there, sure. He's the creator, but he's really, really far away. He doesn't need to be connected to my life. He doesn't need to really be involved. As long as I do more good things than bad things, we're good. As long as I try to live a happy life, and you know, I know he's there if I need him, if an emergency happens, I'll pray, but he can just stay out there and I'll stay down here. That's not the story, is it? The story is that God has come near, making a place that he's formed and filled so that you and I could dwell with him forever. And I actually was blown away in studying and reading Genesis how much of this therapeutic, deistic idea of God being way out there is in my heart. I read this uh, quote from a book called The Human Quest. The author uh, has a last name that I'm too embarrassed to try to pronounce here in church. Uh, I'll let you figure out how to say it. But here's what he says. He said, what would happen to the world and us if God should suddenly turn himself off? The nature of the interaction between God and the world permits only one answer. If God were to turn himself off, everything would cease to exist. Without God, there are no laws, no world, no us. Not only do we rely on God as the creator at the beginning, as the source and order and purpose in the world, as the personal father who gives meaning to to love and depth to personal relationships, we rely on God constantly for our very existence. Friends, one of the greatest problems that we have is that we forget God. We just forget God. But you can't breathe without God. You can't blink without God. You can't wake up in the morning without God. Everything about you and this world and our our universe is held together by God. And our problem is not that we have too big of a vision of him. It's that we don't have a vision of him at all. We're a very small vision. We need a recovery of God, this creator God. And last thing, and I'll close with this. Let Genesis 1 reshape your vision of what Jesus actually came to do. The world goes awry in a garden at a tree because the, fir- the first man, Adam, says no to God. Well, the story doesn't end there, thankfully. We read this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Who, who, is, who is the God of Genesis 1? Well, John 1 says Jesus is. He's the one because this is all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became 
flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled or templed. God dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Where the Bible all goes wrong in a garden with a man at a tree, the whole world is made right at another garden where another man, Jesus, says yes to the Father's will, not no, and goes to another tree. And on that tree, he takes our curse, our sin, the wrath of God that we deserved. He's, he, he bears our punishment, dies in our place, rises again from the dead to forgive you and friends. It's through him that we read about in Hebrews that we are going to get invited into forever Sabbath rest once again. That this, this, this land that we lost, God came to bring us back to the promised land. That this temple that we lost, God came to, came to bring his heavenly temple from heaven to this earth. And the Bible ends like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is the, the intention of the whole story in Genesis. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Would you stand with me? Jesus came to bring us back the presence of God so that we could commune with God. We call this meal communion because it's in this meal that the body of Jesus was broken for us, his blood was shed for us so that we could have life with him and communion with him. In a very real way, when Christians take this meal, we're not just looking back on the death of Jesus and we're not just looking ahead to this new world that he's gonna be bringing to us, this restored world that he's, that he's promised to bring to us, but we stand in the tension of our messy lives right now. We stand with things that are off, and things that are broken. And, and maybe as you're hearing this, maybe, maybe you're thinking about your own life and our, and our world and how tragic it is that God created our world for Sabbath rest and the presence of God, and, and yet it's filled with violence and evil and dysfunction and brokenness. And, 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 and that, that lives in me. That lives in me. And so here we are standing between the death of Jesus and his future return, and I wanna invite you to just bring whatever it is that you're carrying to this meal. Remember, God is the one who feeds his people in Genesis, and God is the one who feeds us today, but he feeds us with his son. And we get to commune with him today with all the tension that we carry in our chest. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to get in groups and take this, and just maybe it's family or your community group or whatever, receive the communion of God today wherever you're at. He loves you, he's for you, he feeds you. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I'm gonna ask you to not come and take this meal. Man, that is not to embarrass you. I don't ever wanna embarrass you. Um, I don't ever want you to feel embarrassed on any level. What I actually would love for you to do is recognize that this is a, a, a meal of faith. This is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And so if that's just not true of you yet, then what we would love for you to do is pray these prayers that we, we're gonna have up on the screen. These are prayers that you can pray around God revealing himself to you and speaking to you. And if you wanna get coffee this week or next week and process any of this, man, we would love to do that. We love you and we're glad that you're here. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come now, receive this meal. Let God feed you today with his son.